Good morning. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, joining me today is freelance writer, Liana Hafer. Hello. It's a change. I'm probably going to get it wrong. We're going to apologize and move past each time it does. Uh, but yeah, there's a grace welcome, period. Liana. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we also welcome from Creative Assembly, senior designer and project lead on uh, Total War Three Kingdoms, Furious Wild, Simon Mann. Hello there, nice to meet you. Uh, so, Simon, we were talking a little bit about this before the show. Um, it seems like you've been on a number of Creative Assembly projects, but I was wondering if you could just talk us through... Uh, your arc in the games industry and then your time at uh, Creative Assembly and the various hats you've worn. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so I graduated, I think, around 2008, 2009 uh, from university with a master's in games design. Um, then basically spent a lot of time unemployed, <laughs> desperately trying to seek a job. Yeah, yeah. Um, desperately trying to seek a job in the industry, basically. And, uh, Luckily enough, I, I managed to impress uh, a games expo and got a job at a company called Zoe Mode, who were well known for, I think it's the Sing It games uh, when they came out. I um, was working on an announced title there for a little bit and then moved on from there and I managed to land a job at Lionhead. I was working on Fable 3 as a contractor on that, as a uh, scripter. Um, then from Lionhead, I went to Rebellion Studios, uh, where I worked as a level designer on the game Never Dead. Uh, which was worked on with Konami. Um, then from there, I went to Criterion Games, uh, where I got the opportunity to be a track designer on Need for Speed Most Wanted, um, doing a few other bits there as well. Um, then I went on to Crytek UK, uh, where I worked on Homefront the Revolution a bit. Um, it, it's worth noting in between all these times, I was applying for a job at Creative Assembly every year. Um, sadly, I didn't manage okay. to get it each time. Uh, I think I applied six times before I finally got in. Um, so persistence does help a little bit. Um, but <laughs> uh, then I finally managed to land the job uh, at Creative Assembly as a designer uh, working on Total War Attila. That was my first project. Uh, I joined the month after Attila joined, which was probably good. Um, yeah, from there, basically, I've been working on a few of the kind of Total War projects. On Attila, my main areas were sieges i was in charge of the siege battles for that um i also worked heavily with setting up the random events we call them random events like incidents dilemmas um, and then also i helped set up the character traits and ancillaries uh, then i i got the opportunity to move on to the warhammer team uh where i was predominantly a battle designer i was mainly working on the sieges there as well uh, along with a few other bits i helped implement the quest battles for example for that project um then after that yeah 3k came up it was a game i'd wanted to make forever basically and thought i'd never get an opportunity to make a romance the three kingdoms video game um but actually the opportunity arose so i kind of jumped onto the historical team again uh where i got the opportunity i my hat was very broad on 3k i guess mainly it was characters uh was my thing but that also involved an awful lot of uh lewis scripting i basically became a kind of part-time scripture again um, on that, and then yeah, working with setting up characters, new systems, uh, traits, ancillaries. I was also doing the events again, kind of a similar hat to Attila, but with slightly more expertise involved uh, at that point. And yeah, now I find myself uh, happily working on Three Kingdoms DLCs. Um, so that's a long, like pre-creative assembly period. I am curious, uh, 
were you always a strategy uh, like enthusiast, or were you a total war? Because it's not always one to one, right? Like sometimes people are really into total war, but not necessarily into strategy games broadly. Uh, where did where did you come down? What was part of the appeal for uh, trying to land at Creative Assembly? It's kind of a weird one. I mean, like I, I first encountered Chogun pretty much when it came out uh, back in what two thousand, I think it was, give or take. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I loved it. Ironically, I, I think I'm more an RTS player than a turn-based player, I would argue. Uh, certainly where my passions lie. And I think something about the scope and the scale of battles in uh, Total War, and finally the chance to be the armchair general, I always knew I was, um, it sort of really kind of caught a nerve with me. It really, really got, caught me. And then it was the concept of the history. I, I was always really bad at history in school, I have to admit. Um, but I always had a passion for it. Like, I love history. I think it's really good. I think my... My teacher was just slightly uh, historical themselves. Um, but for me, there was something wonderful about this sort of ability to be part of the history and actually learning through it. I ended up writing my thesis on like educational games, right? And how games can actually teach people stuff, but without it having to be what we always call like educational games, like those really clumsy attempts in the 90s to like try and teach people by games. But it was more about the teaching than the game. Um, I think there's really some one, something wonderful about the idea that you're playing a really fun game, but at the same time, you're picking up really cool knowledge while you do it. Um, so I think for me, that was it. Kind of Total War was always that perfect storm of history and gameplay to go along with it. So joining around the time of Attila and having that long background uh, with the series, you you sort of been involved with, um, I would say like, I guess maybe arguably there's not really such a thing as an unimportant Total War game because like each one is doing something different. Each one sort of has um, lingering influence on the series. But I think around these parts, uh, a lot of us saw Attila bringing in a lot of like really welcome new ideas that were evolved a bit in Warhammer. And then... Uh, Three Kingdoms was in a lot of ways, uh, you know, a further real gear shift for for the series, and I'm curious how this all unfolds in within Creative Assembly because I think here a lot of us, because all we see are the finished games. I am certainly guilty of this. I look at them as a continuum of different design teams in dialogue with each other sort of changing things based on you know what happened with the last game but i'm curious how does that process actually unfold internally how how much uh is the most recent release influencing or altering the direction of what people are currently working on i think internally what we tend to do is we tend to say right let's take the really key elements of what is total war right we're talking epic battles, a sprawling campaign map. We're talking history, characters, celebrities of the time, right? And actually bringing all of those together. And I think those are the things we start with. But then I think every single Total War project, we also try and mix it up a bit. And I think sometimes it's more successful, sometimes it's less. But I think that's our also our opportunity to try out new ideas and try out interesting things um, as we go. So like, Attila was a really interesting project. I'm I'm actually kind of glad it was my first project here because the theme and the scope was really, really well defined. Like it was really well put together and it was there because we knew we wanted to do the apocalypse, right? Like, and we knew we wanted the apocalypse from the Christian perspective, right? We're talking about the four horsemen here. 
And actually from that, we were able to hang so many interesting kind of period contextual mechanics off it. So you had things like fertility coming in, right? Where, you know, uh, different areas of the map become more or less fertile. And that's actually the cause of the Hunnic Horde's movement is they're in regions of low fertility and they have to move as the global warming comes in. But then tied into the concept of I always really loved the Western Roman Empire start because we were able to try out something really weird where you're playing as the big guy, you're playing as the falling faction, a fallen empire, as it were, and sort of build it up that way. So you can sort of see from that that we actually, while we delivered what I think is a very core Total War experience, we were actually able to add new things in. And it's all about, I think, it fitting the period that we're trying to aim for. Um, like it, It's all about it hitting that mark and that thing that really draws you into the experience. We always use the term authentic. Um, because we can't be accurate because we're a sandbox. Only The only accurate part is our um, starting position after that. Um, you know, it, it's all you and it's all your player experience. But one of those kind of elements with authenticity is that you kind of feel that you're in the world that we're trying to sell you, right? Like the world we're trying to put you in. And I, I think Three Kingdoms, you'll see similar experiences to that where at its heart, it's everything that makes a Total War game. Uh, some of the core features of Total War actually were then even... Uh, we reevaluated and made changes to them. Um, a lot of things under the hood were changed as well, right? Like the way they work internally gave us more, uh, uh, more ability to do different things, to do new ideas that we hadn't previously been able to achieve. But then we were able to add lots of new stuff like characters. As I say, every title war game is about character. But in Three Kingdoms, actually, we were able to take that to the kind of next, the next level, right? As to what a character is and what they represent and how they grow and where they come from. Like, I think it's the first Total War game where we've had such a cast of thousands where all of those characters are impactful to your campaign. How much of that is driven... You're talking about, like, we talk about Attila being uh, really well-scoped out of the gate. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, to what degree is... Uh, how much comes from sort of a... I guess it probably design doesn't happen in a vacuum, but I am wondering uh, to a degree how much comes from sort of a an interest in changing up things from a mechanical standpoint versus uh, how much is theme uh, sort of leading the way? Because I look at Three Kingdoms and obviously you have Romance of the Three Kingdoms as sort of the foundational work uh, for this this history and and the story you're you're telling. Uh, but when we think about like Attila uh, sort of being this like story of the apocalypse, uh, to what degree is like our design is design guiding theme uh, versus theme leading design, uh, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I'd probably say theme is really important to us. Like, I, I think it's something that helps build the experience. And I think also, if you look back, actually, we've done a lot of different mechanics for theme as you go. And I think generally what we will do is we'll split the mechanics up, right? Is we'll look at what are core mechanics, like a core economy, stuff like that. Like we made some changes to the economy in Three Kingdoms, uh, which weren't theme driven. They were driven by the fact that we felt it was an area that could do with some love or improvement, right? Because we always want to offer players a new a new challenge. If every Total War was exactly the same set of challenges and goals, then, you know, why would you want to try the new one? What's the the player challenge to kind of draw you into that experience? So things like, yeah, reworking the supplies, it was because it was something that had been on our list 
for a while as an area of the game that we could improve upon, right? The concept of logistics is actually really interesting when you get down to it. Um, so I think for that instance, mechanic definitely was more important than theme. But then I say, I think with regards to the kind of, especially the characters and the narrative events of the Three Kingdoms, like that was very much to match the theme. And with like the diplomacy rework was an interesting example of a kind of balance of the two, right? Diplomacy is always something, like, once again, that we really wanted to look at and see if we could improve. And we made a really good new system. But the theme of this game lent itself to a more complex diplomatic nature because essentially we're not talking about countries here, right? We're talking about factions within a country uh, battling one another. So I think to a certain extent, it's kind of what the shoe fits, if you see what I mean. So like we will always take the theme into account, but we'll also, we will look at features that don't strictly fit the theme in order to actually improve the gameplay experience that we have. Uh, speaking of the economy, I think this has been one of the more interesting evolutions I've seen across Total War, which is this notion of uh, getting away from sort of the single settlement doing everything model that like I think lasted up through uh, Shogun 2, uh, where every settlement could, could be developed. Uh, and then starting with Rome, uh, Rome 2, uh, maybe a little awkwardly in my eyes, but you started to get this this idea of the central uh, capital city of the province and then uh, these outlying settlements that had specialties, that uh, had things they, they could do and, and absolutely could not. Uh, and I'm wondering if you just talk through sort of the evolutions in when you when y'all consider the economy of a Total War game, uh, what are the lessons you've learned about making it successful? What are the things that you have to watch out for? Um, and specifically with Three Kingdoms, what are the decisions that ideally you're you're sort of forcing on the player? Yeah, so I mean... I think the evolution's quite interesting. It's a little bit before my time, but I think you can see the start of the current system within Shogun 2, because while you had the regions and they were quite sprawling, you also had the uh, the resource buildings inside, if you recall those, um, and that constant feeling that they were getting raided every turn because they had no defenses. Um, but it, it's one of those things where that's kind of the start, I think, of, from what I've discussed with others, at least. That's the start of that evolution there. And I think Rome 2 took it to the point where they codified it, Right? And it, it became a part of the game then. So rather than having one larger region with the main capital and then a couple of resource buildings around, we split it into the province and the regions, um, which I think gives some gameplay interest because you can then do the concept of completionist. So uh, rewarding the player in some way for actually having the entirety of a region and also potentially uh, meeting out punishment, of course, for not having the entirety of the region. It'd be that... Um, economic inefficiency or even instability such as public order or something from that so i think that's kind of where the evolution came from with that and i think it's part of the core challenge with the economy of 3k with what we really wanted to look at is uh synergies and how that works like one thing we uh we were kind of aware of and we wanted to see if we could sort of uh, mix it up a little bit was that uh, in previous games you kind of start templating a little bit like you've got your there's the perfect city build, right? There's the meta. Mm -hmm. And you build along with the meta and you stick to that. Like one of the cool things that we brought in with having the resource regions is essentially while there is still some meta to it, there are also still decisions. Um, I think it's like Sid Meier, right? He always said a game is a series of meaningful decisions. 
And that's the important thing for us is there was an important action to our game that had become automatic for most players. And what we really don't want is for actions to be automatic. We want you to have to kind of feel the action, to plan it and to make a meaningful choice. And then, of course, as with all strategy games, right, the reward is when your plan goes well and you you reap the rewards for your plan kind of um, completing successfully. And so I think that was the really big thing for us is we wanted something whereby there is the synergies, not just between your resource buildings, but also there's heavy synergy within the buildings in your commandery capitals. So you'll see a lot of them, you've got some flat income bonuses from some buildings, but then you've also got um, percentile income bonuses from others. And you can actually synergize within your commandery capital to both kind of make the best use of the resource rewards, but also to actually balance it within itself. Um, and, and the commandery capitals as well allowed us to stop regions being slightly too lopsided. Um, like I know, for example, we've redone the uh, campaign map in the Furious Wild. We've moved some of the regions around. We've changed up the resources. And now actually food resources are far more centered around the historical uh, food areas, right? This is largely in the kind of the northern parts where there's a lot of ma- lot of farmland, um, and then towards the south you've got some more of the rice fields. But the other regions don't have those resources, so the commandery capitals actually give us the ability to kind of allow the player a certain amount of kind of damage limitation or mitigation of those issues, while still something. And I think it's something that Troy's done a really good job of actually, but giving you that almost that desire to take the regions that give you the things that you want. You know, I, I think it's really wonderful in a game. And I had it loads in Troy as well. I was really, really enjoying playing it when it came out. But like that feeling that I need this thing. I know where to get the thing. How do I get it? Which once again, that leads to a kind of planning phase, right? Which has to say that for me, I think is where you get the real joy from kind of strategy gaming. Yeah. Well, and the other interesting thing about that, the, the way the Three Kingdoms map works specifically is it kind of ends up being almost like a battle royale at some point, like everybody kind of gets funneled into this corridor between like the Yangtze and the, uh, the yellow river, because that's, you know, that's where the stuff is. That's, you know, that's where the, the, you know, the powerful can sort of rise, which I thought was kind of interesting because it, it brings all these factions from all over the map into this kind of thunderdome, um, over time. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, I, I think I end up seeing, the same areas of the map and fighting over the same areas of the map a lot. Um, and, and I'm curious if that's something that you guys are aware of. And uh, if uh, what, like, what are, what are some ways you've, you've sort of um, encouraged things to happen elsewhere, except for that kind of like Chong on to the sea uh, sort of uh, bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I quite like the bloodbath to be honest. And I, I think do. It is I do, important yeah. to note this is where this is where the stuff happens, right? Traditionally, right. I think mm-hmm. this is the battle royale. And as you said, it's because there are so many factions there. And interestingly, historically, that's where the factions were, and they all fought. But mm-hmm. I think one thing we noticed very quickly after release, for example, I, I always use the example because he was my favourite faction at the time, which is uh, Sun Xian, uh, mm-hmm. who's of course he's in the south, right? And um, actually, Shijie to a certain extent as well, but they were sort of left on their own without those antagonists around them, right? There wasn't really anyone for them to fight. And because of that, they just expanded, uh, quite often brutally expanded. Um, pretty much most games resulted in one or the other of them being emperor, um, or both even, sorry. And like, that's the interesting thing is we realized that, yeah, kind of everything is centered into this 
middle area because kind of that's where everything is. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, outside of kind of Luoyang, essentially, actually, there's not much happening. So one of the things we did is uh, over time, we started kind of filling out, uh, for example, the southern regions to add more activity there, more things going on. Um, largely, that resulted in us adding more factions, right? Because that's kind of the key thing to give you something to do there as opposed to abandoned regions. But it, it quite nicely segues into one of the reasons why we decided to do the uh, Furious Wild um, is that we really wanted to bring in the Nan Man. It was something the community were really, really up for. Um, I think mainly because elephants are really cool, but one <laughs> of the opportunities it gave us was to actually expand out into that southwestern area, that area that had previously been pretty empty, right? Because we didn't really have, we got people like Xia Long and stuff like that, but they aren't really factions that can fill your time, especially. They're not kind of a threat to you, especially because you're not there. So like, yeah, one of the things that these culture packs really let us do is we're actually able to add, we're terming them internally, we call them a threat, right? Because that's sort of what they represent. They're something that requires your attention as a player. And they're something that you kind of will eventually have or, or sooner or later, right? Actually have to deal with uh, and fight. And that's kind of one of the things why um, the Furious World's nice because actually Sun Jian now doesn't have that like easy expansion constantly. And like Xi Xi actually is pretty much surrounded by them and has to be very nice to them. Otherwise they will absolutely <laughs> crush him. Um, and that's one of the things I think we, we've built that really nice focus around that area because when you're looking at 190, that is where the focus is. But I think with the culture packs coming in, that will help to draw away the focus. And I, I think we're currently planning more culture packs in the future. But I think also what you're going to see is, is the kind of campaigns progress and our campaign maps progresses, actually. They, they move that focus slightly depending on the start date because historically the focus does move, right? You know, um, I can't really say if we're doing it or not, but if you were to do... Uh, the actual Three Kingdoms period, right? The formative uh, phase. Actually, most of the conflicts happening around Jing province, which is kind of towards the south. So it, it's that interesting thing of essentially that accurate star kind of almost uh, simulates history to a certain extent in that the action occurs in the places it historically occurred in. Because I think the more people you've got in one place interacting, the more chaos you have ensuing from that. I'm so glad to hear that uh, the map rework went beyond just expanding the uh, the the map into the southwest because I like th- throughout playing it, I found myself wishing that I'd taken screen more screenshots of the the old map uh, because I was convinced like it feels like I'm having a harder time feeding my feeding my people uh, than I, than I recall. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I'm starting to be like, how far how far to to Chen Province uh, was is a question I find myself uh, asking. Could I just could I just Blitzkrieg Northeast uh, like an arrow uh, and get those farms? Uh, so talking turning to the Furious Wild a little bit though, um, let's talk a, a little bit about the nature of the threat that now exists there. Uh, on the on the far west edge of the map, because uh, there, there's kind of two games that are happening. There is the internal conflicts among the uh, Nanman, and then there's what they represent to the Han factions. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about sort of the the two layered the the two layered conflicts we're seeing here, and the different character uh, each is supposed to have. 
It's quite interesting, actually, because this can tie a little bit into your earlier comment about kind of theme and form and function, right? Theme and uh, theme and mechanic, because one of the things we kind of thought very early on is when when we decided to do this pack, uh, the the one thing we did know is that we hadn't actually reached the date where the romance novels certainly start to encounter them uh, as a culture, which of course led us to an interesting challenge of what what are they doing at this point, right? You know, because by by like two one five, for example, like they're united, they're a they're a tribe under the hand fighting Zhu Ge Liang because uh, a local Han governor decided to get uppity and they joined them. Um, the interesting with that is it kind of led us down this kind of path of what would they have been doing then, right? Like you know, if we take history and we deconstruct and go back, well, take the history, I suppose, the romance, um, and then deconstruct and go back, like where where are they at that point? And that kind of ended up with us going well they're probably not anything yet. They're probably like a group of chieftains, a group of lords who are kind of trying to fight together and build up to become the thing, the leader. Um, and that kind of led us on to essentially creating the concept of the uh, what we call the fealty system and the uniting the tribes as a, a campaign mechanic and a campaign goal that you're actually trying to aim for. And that gave us really interesting kind of ideas with how we could take that. So we had this concept, right, you've got to subjugate the other tribes. And then we went, well, actually, you don't just want to subjugate. You probably want to be able to form alliances or vassals, right? You know, adding a new culture that you're only there to wipe out probably doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, and so we kind of moved through it that way. So it created quite an interesting gameplay when we started to actually test this, where a lot of the people playing it, devs, QA, testers, everyone, were sort of saying it's quite interesting because I'm only really concerned about my thing. Like my, you know, I'm concerned about the Nan Man. I actually, I, I don't know what Sao Sao's doing. And to be honest, it doesn't really affect me in my gameplay. So we decided that actually this was a really good thing to double down on. And so we reworked the, the way the victory conditions worked for them and actually made it so that this uniting the tribes is important, not just narratively and thematically, it's actually important mechanically to you as well. Like the uniting the tribes is doing things that, make your faction able to compete with the Han. And we made it so actually the Nanman at the start of the game would probably get an extremely bloody nose if they came up against a well-armed, uh, not distracted Han faction. And so that became a really key part of the actual development of the culture in the DLC is that actually it is about almost this kind of two-tier campaign. Um, I always remember a really good GDC talk a while ago where somebody described like, Joy in games is when you discover a new world outside of the one you're currently inhabiting. Um, I, I always found that absolutely amazing, this concept that actually discovery and this kind of almost coming out of the cave and seeing there's something outside of it is a really strong motivator for playing a game, especially a game like Total War, where the campaigns are quite long, right? You're putting a large time investment to play. So we kind of doubled down on this concept that actually you've almost got a two-tier campaign system, as you were saying, like as the Nan Man, the first thing I'm doing is playing this kind of almost micro campaign to unite the tribes. But then once I finish the micro campaign, it's just like kind of a effortlessly segueing into the larger conflict, right? And almost by the time you come out, I think, uh, I can't remember who said this at the time, but like, you know, when you come out, essentially there's a campaign that's sort of around you that's completely dynamic. Like, you know, the start pause is always going to be the same every time you start, but by the time you finish uniting the tribes, you have actually no idea what the world state is when you get out of that and that leads to some quite interesting 
situations, right? You know, is Cao Cao the leader? Has he destroyed all the other people? Is he the emperor? Like, all these different things kind of come to mind, and you get quite an interesting experience during that segue, which the idea is hopefully, right, that you'll carry on playing. Um, yeah, with regards actually... to kind of... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go on, go, go. Yeah, I was, well, I was going to ask, uh, so uh, I haven't played quite long enough to, like, completely finish the whole Unite the Tribes thing. I was curious, do you get any sort of other objective beyond that to sort of like throw your hat into the ring with the uh, with the han factions for the emperorship yeah so you get the um the namman kingdom victory condition right right uh, which is to unite you have to unite the tribes and then once you've united the tribes uh you have to then essentially you have to form an expedition into the han territories okay, and you have to take enough of their it. territories yeah, yeah, you've got to, like, the idea is that you've got to take enough of their territories that they'll recognize you as an independent state. Okay. Uh, to a certain extent. And that's the idea behind it. And then actually, I don't think we've done a victory condition quite like this, but yeah, you've essentially got to capture your home territories, capture some handlands as well to sort of kind of prove you can. And then you've actually got to then hold them for a set number of turns. Okay. And that was the idea of that. Is it's kind of about oh, yeah. Realm forming divide. this Nanman kingdom. It's a <laughs> yeah kind of to a certain extent but always remember i think one of the things we do do is that actually once you've completed those victory conditions you're welcome to carry on playing um at that point that is where you can sort of play it your way a little bit you know we take we we take the uh the stabilizers off a little bit and let you go go the way that you want to go with it right i really like that with like the the yellow turban factions where it's like you got to win the mandate war but then you know, there's still other stuff to do after you win the Mandate War. It's like you don't have to stop playing there. Um, but that's kind of also an interesting, like, when when you do take those stabilizers off, are you just intending that eventually someone's going to conquer the whole map or they're just going to get bored? Or, like, have you thought about adding, I don't know, like, prestige objectives, <laughs> you know, that, that people could play for uh, after those those sort of initial victory conditions are met? Let me just write that one down. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think it is one yeah. of the... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, royalties. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But I think um, it's an interesting one because I think, to be honest, at that point, that's where we we do say we end your curated experience. Okay. Um, previously, actually, Three Kingdoms introduced the concept that you don't actually have to capture every single re- region to win. Um, because we've got what's called the victory and then there's what we call the domination victory, which is, uh, I think it's conquer 180 regions. I think we might have. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah, It's conquer a set number of regions and that's essentially just the open condition to end your campaign. And that's when the campaign actually ends, ends. You can't really continue after that. But yeah, we, we had considered that actually it is a bit boring to have to capture every single region in the game. And Actually, when we were coming up with the victory conditions for what we call the tent pole, right, the original um, Three Kingdoms release, like one of the big things we did want to impact was essentially the end game grind, where, like, you know, okay, I'm emperor, I've got to beat the other emperors. Do I now just have to fight for the next 300 turns in order to win? Like, we added various, um, what's the word for it? Like, uh, kind of let off valves, basically, like things that you could use to actually speed up that transition to that point because i don't think strategy games are fun when you know you've won it to a certain extent i think you get the payoff when you win right that's always exciting but actually once you know you've won it's essentially a kind of 
don't like the word, but like a death march essentially to the end of the game where you're just like, right, mm-hmm. just going to hit enter until eventually <laughs> this yeah. happens, right? And I think that's the thing is, once again, like you don't want the player to ever get to the point where they're not planning, they're not making meaningful choices, they're not actually trying to beat the game, right? Like I think that's the important thing. Uh, one of the things that certainly is driving conflict for me is, uh, so as, as Meng Huo, who uh, I think Rowan described as sort of the default character, uh, which I do kind of agree with, it's an easier start uh, among, among the non-man. But as uh, Meng Huo, I am, like, the campaign introduces these broad choices about how you're going to develop, right? And it sort of seems like the broad choice is, do you begin adopting some of the customs and uh and structures of the hand or do you sort of remain uh authentic to nanman roots and because i'm playing this expansion and trying to get as much trying to just get as a concentrated a flavor of the new factions as i can uh at every choice i'm just like let's get more Nanaman. Let's just let's get more tribal <laughs> if possible. Uh, and so, I've, and what I've discovered is, um, I have maybe the most ridiculously overpowered shock army I've ever played in a total war game. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, like I am engaging armies that are like two or three times as big, which should matter. It feels like, but the problem is that they just melt in the first charge. Uh, because also all my generals have, um, uh, or a bunch of my generals have like morale, uh, morale, uh, special abilities to sort of, uh, break the enemy. And so like by pushing, just by pushing everything to the, uh, to, to the max in terms of the shock and fear abilities, uh, I am basically, it's, it's pretty hilarious watching armies like just completely evaporate <laughs> and then run like a couple hundred meters and realize like, wait, why did we just run and start reforming? Uh, but one of the side effects of, of doing that, though, is that the more you commit to being a sort of Nanman ruler, the more the, the Han factions just hate you. And so uh, to Leanna's question, I mean... I don't know what's happening in your games, uh, but in mine, what is happening is I am just trying to live my valley life, and the <laughs> Han keep trying to pour into the valley and wreck my stuff, and so I'm basically invading the rest of China just out of annoyance, um, because I can only send their armies packing so many times before I begin thinking... You know, this would be a lot easier if what if what if no Han. Uh, that's, that, that's sort of my, that's sort of the guiding, uh, belief, but when these two armies and cultures encounter each other, uh, what are the distinctions between them, right? Like, if you had to boil down, okay, here's how the Han armies fought that you played around with in the core game, here's what, here are your options, uh, here's your toolbox if you go the non-man route what's the what are, what's the faction dichotomy we're playing with here yeah I, I think you mean specifically the battle as well right in this instance yeah yeah um so 
the, the main thing we wanted to go for with Nan Man is uh, obviously you picked up on it, so it means we did a good job. Is the uh, shock? <clears throat> I mean, all all their units are essentially pretty decent at charge, and as soon as you add a couple of ton of elephants into that as well, it makes things extremely uh, volatile. Um, and that that was the core idea: is essentially the Nan Man have to break the front line. Um, they really need to get in quick, smash things up, cause chaos, and then kind of clean up before anything happens. Um, because actually in the prolonged melee, that's where they will suffer uh, dramatically. And actually when it comes to being under heavy ranged fire, for example, they'll suffer dramatically. They also don't really have much in the way of getting to the soft squishy bits, which is why they need to get that that initial shock in as quickly as possible so they can crack open the formations of the hand. I mean, to a certain extent, we kind of designed them so that they would actually cause some damage to the hand to have some reasonable power. And I, I think mainly to give you a slightly different way of playing because like the hand structure is a lot more kind of built up than that. I mean, they rely, in my games especially, I think they rely very heavily on ranged units. So it's about that strong front line to hold off the enemy strong cav, strong ranged, especially when you've got things like multiple bolt crossbows and things like that coming in. Like they're really all about um essentially having that ranged power and range strength with the cavalry flanking to break there. I'd probably say the hand play more like a traditional uh we always use the term hammer and anvil, if you yeah. guys know that, where you've essentially got your front mm -hmm. line and then you got your cav coming in behind, right? Like the hand tend to play well with a hammer and anvil or an envelop envelopment style of combat the nan man are sort of a bit more about just getting in there as quickly as possible and trying to take out those weaker units so they can crack the egg yeah it's just like throwing like a, throwing a handful of daggers at the enemy line and <laughs> seeing which ones pierce through it yeah 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 like, basically yeah. but yeah go oh i was just i was but, just um, saying I, I like that i like that that's sort of how they initiate battles yeah. it's pushed me out of my comfort yeah because it's furious uh, because I be uh, like I have always been. I think this is possibly why I uh, why I have bounced off a little more of the Total Warhammer games uh, than than other folks on this pod because there are so many. Like I can't command the Skaven to save my life because the Skaven oh, yeah. <laughs> don't win set piece battles the way I fight them. Right? Like there is no anvil in the Skaven arsenal. And so you're you know you're trying to you're trying to whip the hammer around and it's like damn the center collapsed again. Uh I'm yet yeah, this is my shock face. And every time I'm like but there were so many rats. There's so many rats right there. I don't I don't know what happened. Uh with, with the Nanman I've I'm definitely being pushed into uh, not being able to sort of wait out that early skirmishing that I always did in Three Kingdoms, where it's like, eh, we'll let the ranged units uh, fight it out while my cavalry sort of menaces them. With the Nanman, uh, I think you helped crystallize what's actually happening. They really do just need to blitz um, because if yep. they don't, if they don't build up an early lead in the first half of the match, uh, it's going to get bad for them in the second half. And it's been really excruciating losing a number of battles uh, that way when things seem to get off to a great beginning. And then everyone just starts to uh, get bogged down. Um, but it's yeah. it's been interesting seeing how the Nanman fight against each other and then 
how all of it turns on its head when they're fighting more advanced uh, Han armies, which are very like very much built for the endurance match. Um, and it's been interesting seeing them clash. Yeah, I think it's quite fun as well when you've got Nanman versus Nanman. I think especially in the early game, because in the early game you only have access to a limited part of your your final roster, I should call it, like the the the, the units you'd have access to at the end, and you do come up against somebody like uh, like Menghui is a really fun start unless you actually end up declaring war on Mulu or Zhu uh, Rong early, because then you're having to deal with their unit types, and actually you don't always have a counter to their unit types and actually it's quite interesting when it's being out nanmanned by a nanman uh, where, where essentially they can just blitz you harder and faster than you're actually able to deal with with the counters you have available um, like one thing we did in the faction early faction design was uh, we had the concept of major and minor factions so there's like the seven majors when you see the fealty panel of course you can tell which we mean but uh, the major factions and the minor factions the major are named people the minor are just kind of uh, areas like kind of yulin or something like that but the idea behind that is actually the miners have counters to the majors' units. Um, so one thing that you can do is, you know, if you know who you're going up against, you can get the unit that will beat their special units from another faction first before you come up against them. And that's the interesting thing is, yeah, once you've got the counters to many of the Nanman units, you actually kind of, you, you can flip the blitz on its head, especially if you've got things like charge reflection and stuff like that coming in, right, um, against an elephant. Because I, if I recall correctly, mass is used as part of the calculation. So... Yeah, it's quite interesting the way you can eventually turn those those strengths into weaknesses. One of the questions... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, speaking of special units, um, tigers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, they're, they're a lot of fun to use. I, I'm, like, I'm curious, is there actual like textual sources uh, beyond like the novel that tigers were ever used in warfare in this era? Um, and if if not, where does where did that decision come in as far as okay, this is this is a historical game, but it's also kind of this romantic, epic sort of um, semi-fantastical sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's worth explaining it now that really there's not huge amount of records of the Nanman people outside of the romance uh, novels themselves. There are the indigenous people who live in that region. Uh, there's records of indigenous people who lived in that region, but the sort of big characters and what we know of them, like as far as I'm aware, there isn't actually a historical record of them using elephants. Um, I, I think what we do have is we've got the, what's the word, the kind of the general knowledge that actually people around that area used elephants. Therefore, we right. can assume that it works that way. So with regards to the tigers, I, there are records of animals like tigers being used in battle. Um, but I don't think there are specifically around this area. What we did here is we actually took a lot of inspiration from the romance novels itself when it came to what the Nanman would be and who they are, like their characters are straight off the page. But I, I, I think for us, it was something we chose to do because we didn't think we could do it without, um, e even though it's it, some of the characters, probably most of them are quasi-fictional. Um, I think it's one of those things where if we did it without them, I don't think anyone would appreciate or like it. I think there's a certain expectation, right, when you buy a chocolate bar that it's going to have chocolate in it, that <laughs> if the Nan Man exists, they've kind of got to have these elements, even if that means that we do have to, to to take it off the page of the romance, the romanticized history, as opposed to the 
uh, physical history itself. Like, but one thing, some of the things we were able to do is we were able to use things like cultural history, um, artistic history, things like that to help really uh, define our art direction and the view and the visuals of how everything came about. So I think to answer your question, yeah, I don't think there's an exact historical reference to the use of tigers in it, but I think we took that animals were trained and used in battle and there was a lot of reference within the romance novels to the using and training of animals in battle. I think one thing we decided not to do was I think somebody launches a volley of snakes at someone else. Um, yeah. We decided not yeah. to do that. Uh, we, drew, we drew a line somewhere. But um, <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing is, yeah, we, we kind of, we did take a little bit of a historical liberty, I think, with this, but I think we did it for the right reasons here. Um, what's happening under the hood that all the Nanman characters are just the nicest, coolest people uh, in, the, in the game? <laughs> like, it's, it's starting to get weird uh simon when when i'm when after a battle i check out like who i was taken prisoner and as opposed to the han where like fully half the people you meet are just uh the worst pricks in china uh the that man all Ouch. seem to have like the nice traits of like they're patient they're kind they're uh you know at worst like somebody might be ascetic or something but like in general everyone's really cool and i'm curious what's going on there because i keep like i keep recruiting everybody i take prisoner uh because they just seem awesome and i'm like eventually i will find a use for you um Please help me. My faction is dying. <laughs> I'm paying too much in salary, <laughs> but but I'm also surprised. Like everyone seems cool. Maybe you just really like them. Um, I I think it ties into a, another decision we made. So we came up with the concept of like uniting the tribes. Right, you're playing the prologue of the Nanman Kingdom, as it were. And I think one of the things we didn't really want to happen is. When Zhuge Liang meets Meng Huo, right, like when he fights him, there is uh, what's called the seven captures. So Meng Huo gets defeated seven times in battle and captured seven times. And there's this absolutely wonderful bit in the novel where basically after each defeat, Meng Huo goes to another one of his buddies, like, you know, another one of his kind of uh, vassals yeah. or, or colleagues or lieges. And he goes like, can you help? Like, you know, can you come give us a hand over here, please? You know, like all these wonderful characters start turning up, right? Like King Mulu appears and it's like the description of him is he's like the greatest person who ever lived ever in history of the world. Like, of course, in the novel, they're trying to big up the enemy, right? To make uh, Zhuge's accomplishments much better. But as far as I'm concerned, that just means they must have been really cool. Um, and what we didn't really want is for them to just get killed, right? Like, if you look at the Han factions in the game, like, getting Cao Cao in your faction is possible, but it's not easy. You've kind of got to hope that he eventually makes his way back to you and wins his way in your direction, and then he eventually likes you enough to join, and you don't have traits that are, um, what's the word, antitheses of one another as you're going. And what we really wanted is essentially this early game of the Nanman is basically building up your perfect squad like your perfect team and we tried to make as much as possible the nanman characters get on with one another while still having some you know interesting elements of their personalities not all being the same um but we did want that concept that you are bringing all these people together you're building the cast it's like um one of my favorite movies is seven samurai by akira kurosawa and the ultimate bits of those are the bits where they're forming the team or i guess you could look at things like oceans 11 right like 
when when the team is being formed, that's kind of the cool bit. Where you're like, who are yeah. they going to get next? Who's the next person? <laughs> um, it's a really nice feeling. Like, there's something nice about not strictly having to kill everyone. It's more like, look, I've beaten you now. Come with me. Right? You know, there's a bigger threat that we need to deal with now. And I think that was something we really wanted to instill with the Nan Man. Like, for example, even at a faction level, we added the ability to confederate uh, when you capture the last settlement of a Nan Man. So you can confederate or vassalize if you capture their last settlement. And the entire reason for that is to keep them alive. Because every faction that you destroy, every character you kill, is essentially a story that's no longer there, right? We have to create a new character and start a fresh story and generate a fresh faction to go with it, for example. And I think that was the thing, is keeping these characters and factions alive longer means that they become deeper as characters. There's more to them. They've got a history now. You know, like you remember the character who you had to defeat their faction and beat them in battle. You don't remember the character who just spawned in your recruitment pool and you recruited him because he was like legendary. You want something more to that story. Like you want more of a journey that you went through to get that. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought it was really interesting how it's sort of because um, I, I, I've been playing as Lady Jurong, which probably should not surprise anybody who knows me. Uh, I think she's my favorite <laughs> character on the entire map now because she's a fire girl with berserker powers. Um I thought it was funny that the the like there there's all these events that are like trying to kind of push me to be like hey Meng Huo he's kind of he's kind of cool huh you wanna do you wanna be like a power couple with with Meng Huo that'd be cool and I'm just like nah bring me his head um, yeah like I I thought that was interesting that there's sort of that arc that can kind of bring their factions together uh, which is something that that I hadn't uh, hadn't really seen before. Um, yeah, uh, and, and it's it's kind of um, what you're saying about like like keeping these factions around rather than having them just absorbed into your blob or whatever. And then maybe they'll become you know generals or cabinet ministers or something later. I haven't really tried doing that. Is that something you feel like is viable and that that you guys would want to explore as a design space going forward? Is it sort of I guess the vassal swarm as we would call it in in grand strategy. Um, I, I actually think Three Kingdoms is one of the first games where you can nicely explore Vassal Storm. I mean, you go onto YouTube and the number of awesome Kong Rong playthroughs where it's like they've got two regions <laughs> and they've got about 20 vassals. And I think I think the, uh, the the vague cursing in the earlier days of balance as Yuan Shao got another vassal, um, which I yeah, think we've improved yeah, a little I bit. Yeah, I remember now. that, like, yeah. Um, it, it still happens from time to time, right, because the system allows it to happen. Um, and I think that's the thing. Actually, I, I think Vassal gameplay is really nice. For us. I still think we've got things to continue improving on with Vassal gameplay and make it better. But I, I kind of agree with you. I think having ha having things that are sort of under but not quite fully under your control, for me, is quite interesting. I don't think it would fit every, every type of player. I, I think some players like that full control. And I think some players like that... Um, diminished control like one of the ideas we really wanted to put into the temple but we didn't in the end for some good reasons was um used to have the auto govern uh functionality for your regions and provinces so when you had a governor there you could say right do you know just auto govern build that way build that thing but i say we decided not to do it because we wanted that concept of don't don't just template and we don't want that concept of having to deal with something that could potentially ruin your game because of the investment of uh, both time and money required to do it so we ended up not taking that feature but i think there's always that balance there between like if you 
if the player gives us more of the control, it lets us do more things. And we can do more interesting and exciting things with that because we've got control over the actors at that point, right? We can make them do what we want. Um, the more control we give the player, of course, that means that we've got slightly less ability to take that to the places that we'd be able to narratively take it otherwise. So I think it's something we'll always be considering, but I think we always have to get that balance of allowing you full control. I mean, we are a sandbox, right? But like allowing you that full control and then having that, yeah, essentially that kind of like sit here and watch the story unfold kind of control that comes with it. Uh, speaking of like sort of the tension between player control and then things being a little bit in the hands of the system, uh, is that kind of the thinking behind the way the Nanman characters develop? Uh, so the core Han characters in Three Kingdoms, uh, if you play that, have the sort of skill tree based on their class. Uh, the Nanman develop very, very differently. You get to make like some big choices about where to put their skill points to just directly buff their um, their their attributes. But then a lot of the bonus uh, skills and abilities come through uh, things that happen or things that these characters do over the course of uh, a campaign. And so to really push a character to become uh, a really ass-kicking, high-instinct character, they have to go and kick ass in battle. That has to be a thing that, that you go make happen, uh, which often, like, you know, I will send a, a general trooping straight into uh, straight into an enemy formation, uh, very old-school Total War suicidal general stuff, uh, just so that they kill a bunch of... Um, Look, it's it's a hard world out there. Uh, just they slaughter a lot of peasants and <laughs> rack up kills uh, so they get the abilities associated with it. But I thought it was an interesting change uh, that I can guide the way these characters will develop. But also some of it is kind of up to the vagaries of what happens in the campaign, what happens in the specific battles we fight. It, yeah, it was a kind of a, it was a big change for us actually. It was one that was kind of given a lot of consideration. Like it, it kind of stemmed from a very early decision that we wanted the Nanman characters to feel very different to the Han characters, which you know that led to further design meetings and discussions about what what does it mean to be a Han character, right? And then what does it mean to be not a Han character? What does it mean to be something different? I'm sure as we explore new cultures, we'll probably uh, reevaluate that relationship again as we go, but. One of the key things we wanted is we like the idea that you've got to take an action, right? You've earned the XP. You're rewarded. Here's your reward, actually. Make a decision to do something to one of your characters to make them better. Um, but what we also wanted to try out with the Nan Man is, as part of kind of the, the, the sort of more focused style of it, was actually to bring in the idea of actually simplifying the decision process out, that you only have to choose between a few things, but then adding almost the idea. It, come, it comes from a narrative background again, where it's about that character's actions and it's almost like it's the um you know when you get like a kind of sort of viking lord and it's like son of such and such son of such and such who slaughtered the you know slaughtered the dragon and took that way like it was part of that idea is it's almost about this kind of tribal legacy system where they actually you know it's about what you've done right not strictly how often you've done it it's about the different actions that you took with it and it, it became something that we really explored in depth. And we added this idea, yeah, you've got personal goals. Every character has 
their objectives. And it, it comes in once again to when these characters join you, they've got a story to them, right? Because you'll look at this character who's just joined and it's like, well, they won an ambush battle. That means, ah, oh, okay, that's a person who's fought in ambushes before and they're better at said thing because of it. And that was kind of an interesting concept. Once again, it's about giving these characters slightly more of a story, storied background to themselves to try and build in that depth. Because what we don't really want is to kind of give you a pre-baked character story behind them. What's much more fun is when these characters are essentially building their own histories as they go. And I think it's something that skill system has actually allowed us to explore. Yeah, it's uh, it, it has been an interesting uh, change for sure. It's also, again, forced me to play against type uh, with the way I use a lot of my commanders and certainly the way I used uh, Han commanders. We're running a little uh, long time. We got to we got to wrap this. So uh, I thought I would turn it to uh, let's say it could be an area of grievances or uh, you just talk about uh, like work left to be done on, on Total War. But I'm curious, what is the what is the biggest pain point or the uh, complaint that drives people to Creative Assembly uh, the craziest uh, when they hear it, right? Like what? Like when when you sort of consider Total War games, not just in isolation, but just as you know the broad franchise. What are what's sort of the most enduring and difficult problem that y'all are always being held to account for or trying to solve? Oof, how long you got? I mean, that's one of those <laughs> things where I think everyone the problem the problem Total War has is it's realistically it's about three or four games in one, and I think that's another part of why I think it's absolutely amazing, right? You've got real time battles, turn based campaign, you've got. Uh, multiplayer battles you've got multiplayer campaigns you've got an economy builder with a character simulator stuck on top and i think that every single one of those areas i think there are things that some people like and some people hate i mean i, I think my biggest thing it's not really anger or grievance right i think the thing that makes me saddest is when half the people say they want thing a and then half the people say they want the same thing to be the other way around uh it, it doesn't drive me mental but i'm sort of like I don't know which decision to make now, right? I, I, I've not got the information now to make the decisions that we need to make to make those changes. Um, I mean, I think probably the biggest criticism I've seen with Three Kingdoms that I think I sort of agree with to a certain extent, and I really want to see what we can do with it in the future, is uh, that the way we haven't strictly capitalized on the story that we've taken with us, I think as a sandbox game and a narrative game, I, I really do think Three Kingdoms is fantastic. And it's probably, it's definitely one of my favorite Total War games that we've done, right, that I've played. But I think there's something where we could actually take things further quite often. You know, I think it's, sometimes there's missed opportunities and things we could do further. I really want to look at how we can get those big events of the book. I, I kind of waxed lyrical earlier, right, about how, you know, it's all about tangential learning and, you know, you learn through play and stuff like that. And I think we could actually continue to improve that and do a better job of getting those narrative arcs and getting it so you can kind of feel the narrative there. I think if you're someone who knows Three Kingdoms, the Three Kingdoms game is fantastic. I think if you're somebody who's learning Three Kingdoms, it's also fantastic, but I think we could probably teach you more, right? Without you knowing you're being taught, it's just more of the cool events that actually make the story such a good uh, piece of source material, like something to work with. Um, but I say that's kind of more my personal thing than anything. I think we get you know, we get feedback and we really do listen to what the community say. We have an entire community team 
um, who are helping us kind of cite the things that are the big issues. Like one of the biggest issues we had before we started on the Furious Wilds DLC was actually that a lot of players in China were pretty unhappy about the fact that none of the regions had the right names. So you get like Chen Farmland, and they're like, that's not called Chen Farmland. That's <laughs> not its real name. So that was an interesting thing is it's, there, there are things that we can actually act on really nicely. And it's like, hey, this is a content change. This is good. We can make this really, you know, it, it takes time and it's work and effort. But I think the payoff is really, really good. A lot of people have already reacted very positively to the um, the releases and the things that we've put out there, right? Like the videos and stuff like that. The new regions are really cool. And that was a lovely experience of us trying to look at something that play, the player base had seen that they didn't like. Um, we've got a really good team who work with kind of Chinese experts and stuff to get us any information we can't easily get. Like a lot of the really, really juicy stuff's not translated into English, unfortunately, but they've been really helpful. We got the list. It was something where a lot of people work together to just make the game that little bit better to add on to it. And I'm really hoping as we continue, we can kind of find find that next nitpick and we can pick that up and fix that. Like, And by the time we've kind of finished all of our, you know, kind of the game's life, life cycle, as it were, that it's going to be something pretty amazing. Okay, well, uh, that is an exciting. Uh, that's an exciting wish list. Uh, I look forward to you uh, <laughs> building out your kick-ass uh, Three Kingdoms prologue campaign, a la Attila, at some point. Uh, but that will do it for this week. Uh, Simon, good luck with uh, Furious Wild. Uh, I look forward to seeing the oh, reviews. Thank you. Um, I'm still working on mine, and I'm probably not going to make release date, but. Uh, who knows what a late night of work uh, can, <laughs> can achieve. But that'll do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, this episode was produced by Liana Hafer. Through His Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. That also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, uh, for Liana, for Simon, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. <laughs>